If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode 154 of the Leading Learning Podcast. This time around, we talk with learning strategist Brandon Carson, author of Learning in the Age of Immediacy. Before we turn to the conversation with Brandon, we want to thank our sponsor for the fourth quarter of 2018. And our sponsor this quarter is Review My LMS, a collaboration between our company, Tagoras, and 100 Reviews. As the name suggests, Review My LMS is a site where users can share and access reviews of learning management systems. And the focus is specifically on systems that are a good fit for learning businesses, meaning organizations that market and sell lifelong learning. Contribute a review and you get access to all existing and future reviews, and there are already more than 100 on the site. And if you don't have a review to contribute, there's also a subscription option. For details, check out ReviewMyLMS.com. Definitely check out ReviewMyLMS.com for details. And now let's get some details about this episode of the podcast. So, Salisa, tell us a little bit about what you and Brandon cover. Well, Brandon has experience leading a wide variety of learning programs and teams, and his book, Learning in the Age of Immediacy, really consolidates a lot of what he's learned. So we talk about what he's seen in the learning industry in his 25 plus years working in the space, five factors that he believes in the aggregate will have the most influence on learning in the next several years. And we also get into mobile, virtual, and augmented reality, as well as artificial intelligence. Um, He also has one of the most poignant personal learning experiences to share in response to that penultimate question that we like to ask of all our guests. Well, it sounds like y'all managed to touch on a lot of the really hot button topics that are out there right now in the whole world world of learning. So I'm sure that this is going to be of interest to our listeners. Let's get on with the interview with Brandon Carson. Hello out there. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I'm joined by Brandon Carson. Brandon, is a learning strategist with deep experience leading learning programs and teams in all types of organizations. He's a speaker and the author of Learning in the Age of Immediacy, Five Factors for How We Connect, Communicate, and Get Work Done. Brandon, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you, Salisa. It's great to be here. Happy Friday. Thank you. And so to help folks uh, better understand the perspective that you bring to thinking and writing and speaking about learning in today's world, would you tell us a little bit more about your experience and, and your work? Yes, sure. So I've been in corporate training roles for 25 years now. So uh, quite, a, quite a history in different roles. I started as an instructional designer and I've uh, evolved into different roles throughout my career. And right now I'm leading a learning team at Delta Airlines. Uh, We're primarily focused on supporting all of our airports around the world and the folks who work in them. So it's been an interesting career journey, if you will, all the way through my formative stage. The early part of my career uh, primarily focused uh, on technical training and some on sales training for tech companies because I spent the majority of my career in Silicon Valley. Um, Then the last several years spent in retail and now in the airline industry. So quite quite a broad perspective on the different types of workplaces out there and also getting a lot of knowledge and information about what a swath of worker demographics are going through as we hurdle through this uh, transformation we're in right now. So it's been, it's been an interesting career in one that's afforded me lots of different perspectives on the challenges and opportunities and great things and bad things about uh, the workplace. Well, so you've, you just said, you know, you've been doing this for 25 years. You've been out working in the past as an instructional designer, as a strategist, as, as a leader of learning teams. So maybe you can talk a little bit about some of those um, changes that you've seen um, during those, those 25 years um, and maybe some of those uh, challenges and opportunities that you were just mentioning. It has been an interesting 
evolution over the last 25 years because I started in the industry really right before the internet unfolded and became, uh, you know, started changing and transforming kind of how business operates, which, you know, as we know, when, when disruption occurs with business, it usually also occurs with learning businesses because we're supporting those businesses. So seeing that change, uh, you know, I would, I would say some of the biggest uh, transformations that have come across with that change has really been in the speed of what we do. It's the speed of business, but also the speed of how we produce the learning solutions that we produce and how we effectively support workers in the workplace and, and uh, things like that. That has radically changed since I've been in the industry. There was a time when we had more, we had larger teams. We had more skill-specific folks on teams. Uh, we had um, a lot of opportunity to do the right level of analysis. And I remember some of the programs I worked on back in the day of computer-based training, CBT, that kind of stuff. We would take six or seven months to to produce comprehensive software training, things like that. So that has really shifted over over time in that, you know, the, the key disruption in business is like the speed of business. And so along with that comes the speed of helping folks be able to perform their job. And so it's no longer tenable for us to be able to necessarily take a lot of time to create learning solutions. However, the, the great, the, the positive aspect of that change has been leveraging technology, leveraging empathy and more design thinking for us to, uh, you know, really have much more understanding of what happens in the workplace, to be more connected and sometimes embedded in the workplace and leverage uh, technology to help the speed of the market with our learning solutions and being more agile and being, you know, in, in helping folks with solutions that are more meaningful and relevant to them. So it's, so there's been, it, it's just really been a sea change in, what it means to be a learning professional. The old days of creating SOPs and binders with slides and, and uh, taking a lot of time to do that and then setting up the uh, delivery of that over time has really changed um, in a lot of ways to, to really uh, focus more on that moment of need and how you can get information and learning to people quicker. So that, that's been the biggest change, I think, over time. As, as our industry has evolved, you know, the tools we use has evolved. The uh, idea of what we need to know to be a learning professional has evolved a bit. But there are some fundamentals that, have, that, that are there, you know, understanding how we transfer knowledge from one human to another. That, that hasn't changed. That's a fundamental, being able to really understand how people in, in complex workplaces you know, meet, you know, learn and and are able to do their jobs. Those, those are fundamentals, the core of what we do, which have not really changed. It's just the artifacts and the tools and the technology that's come along to help us do things quicker and differently. So some things remain the same, and it sounds like really, though, of what's changed, it's speed. It's that, that fast pace of change. And I think that segues nicely into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is just how do you define or describe the age of immediacy? Uh, great question. So really, in, in a, if you think about it, the internet has really only been with us for a little more than 40 years. And, and when you step back a little and think, you know, in the, in the uh, kind of evolution of humanity itself, that's not very long that's pretty quickly when you think about it, that this, uh, this technological change has, has come to us. And, and the great thing about its evolution and its speed to ubiquity, if you will, is the great thing about that is it's all built on uh, standards. And the founders of the internet were really smart when they thought about, okay, if we're going to do this, let's, Let's really do it in a standards-based format, which has led to that quick adoption and that ability for it to, uh, you know, transform how we do what we do. Um, and then when you add to that this internet revolution, primarily 
really took off when the easy-to-use connected devices and, and the ability for us to access networks became easy and became relevant to what we could do with it when we, uh, when we realized what we could do with it. That's what I mean. And when you think about the telephone itself, it took, the, it took 80 years for the telephone to reach ubiquity. And so when you look at the speed of this revolution, it's, it's quite transformative. And that's why, and we're kind of in the middle of it, maybe the early stages of it in reality. And so that's why some of it seems overwhelming to us. And this disruption that we always talk about to how business processes and, and all of that have come about. So the fundamental aspect of that, though, is how we acquire and share knowledge has fundamentally changed. And along with that, the, te- the disruption with business has fundamentally changed. And so one thing I, I talk about in, a, in, in the context of what I call the age of immediacy is no longer will any worker at any level not interact with technology to get their job done. So I'm saying we're all knowledge workers now. And so when you think about how things are happening, how fast, just that 40 years where we've moved from uh, an, really an unconnected earth to everyone on earth will be connected. It's pretty amazing when you think about how that's fundamentally altering every aspect of how business is conducted, which thereby alters every aspect about how we do our jobs. So that age of immediacy means that we don't necessarily have a lot of time to <laughs> reflect on things and to think about things because business is moving at the speed of the internet now. And so we need to, you know, it's, it's altering how we connect each other, how we communicate, how things get done uh, in the workplace. And so we need to rethink the systems that we put in place and also the learning systems that we put in place. So that's really what I mean by it. When I talk about that age of immediacy, no longer is it tenable for people to wait to learn something when things are happening at the, you know, the speed of business. So sort of a greater imperative to learn and to remain learning, to learn quickly. And I know that you're, you talk about five factors that inform this age of immediacy. You talk about workplace automation, the cloud, mobile, big data and analytics, and the internet of everything. Will you just talk a little bit about why you believe these five factors in the aggregate will have the most influence on how learning is designed, delivered, and evaluated in the next several years? Sure, that's a good question. My, my key thesis here is, is really looking at the aggregation of what's disrupting business the most. And when, although in the book I talk about each one of these technologies, if you will, or these aggregation of different things that make up workplace automation, for example. I talk about them separately, but quite candidly, most of them are intersecting to uh, transform the processes that we, you know, that are driving business now. So, but when you pull it all apart, it's like we're in this perfect storm of a lot of these technology disruptions coming together to move business forward at an accelerated pace. And if you take software, for example, you've seen a really quick iteration of how software is not only being developed, but how it's being distributed and accessed and used by folks uh, in the business. Now, a lot of folks will say, well, we've, we've had technology disruption throughout history. This is really you know, nothing new. Um, but I would argue this era is a little different because software not only is reaching a quick inflection point where it will really be able to anticipate our needs, complete our tasks, connect us to continually faster and simpler ways to work. It's doing it at a rapid pace. And, and you have really two worlds of thought when you come to the, uh, when, when some people come to the aggregation of what these technologies are doing and how they're affecting uh, the workplace and humanity in general, some folks are saying this is going to be a disruption at a massive scale and it's going to be uh, the displacement of workers is going to be quite significant. And then there's another stream of folks who, who say, you know, that we've had this before. We had it at the turn of the, of the 
20th century when, you know, the industrial revolution came along and really automated a lot of, especially farming and agriculture, a lot of things were automated there. Uh, so you have those two, two kinds of schools of thought, if you will, and we're bystanders. We're watching a lot. It's really hard to anticipate or predict necessarily what's going to happen with a lot of it, a lot of that. But, but it is uh, affirmative. I mean, we can see that there will be a certain level of disruption, especially when it comes to rote work and, and uh, manual labor and things like that, because when business sees what can be automated and how error can be reduced, it's going to take that path, right? And if that displaces workers, uh, then we'll either have to make decisions on how we find other things for those workers to do or how we augment what they're doing with, with the automation, or they will just be displaced, right? So there's that, sort of that disruption by, you know, by the automation of, of the workplace. And a lot of these factors are, are working together to do that. If you uh, or to bring that forward uh, quicker, um, and if you look at one of the things I talk about in the book on the cloud, so the cloud to me is is really one of the most disruptive, definitely uh, disrupting the, the business at a at a rapid pace. If you look back over just a few years where we've started this evolution of cloud technologies, it's just amazing how. Uh, IT itself has really migrated. It, this we are in the time right now of the largest migration in the history of the IT industry as it moves completely to the cloud, and so that's really decentralizing content. It's decentralizing the way we work. It's enabling the rise of multiple devices connected that are all connected to one another, and and then that disruption is allowing mobile ubiquity to happen, which is you know, in itself changing how workers uh, share and receive information on a massive scale. So you bring all these things together and it's like impossible for us in learning to ignore these technologies. And so in the book, I'm really talking about these five technology factors uh, and how they're disrupting business from the perspective of the learning uh, business. And so should you in learning really be, you you should be understanding these technologies, but how should you leverage these technologies to help enable performance in the business as workers are being, you know, required to use these new systems and and these new processes that are taking over because of these technologies, right? So it's, it's this kind of intersection of the utilitarian aspect of all these technologies, but also in learning, the way you do it now or the way you used to do it probably is not going to be as effective if you don't look at how you can leverage these technologies to embed more of that learning into the work stream itself. Well, again, I think that's a great segue to something else I wanted to talk uh, with you about, which is um, you particularly call out mobile as the one of these trends or factors that you think um, can demonstrate the most tangible return on investment for a learning organization in the short term. So would you talk a little bit about what you think smart learning businesses should be thinking about mobile now and maybe what they should be doing with it? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it, it's funny, in just over a little over a decade, you know, these devices, smartphones especially, have have really become an extension of our of ourselves. I don't know many people that are ever really without one, and, uh, and we expect these devices to to really be a part of our lives, to entertain us, to shepherd us through our tasks, and to keep us constantly connected. And I think that's the biggest change over the last decade is this idea that we are always connected. It's just a part of our existence now. So this mass adoption has brought along a major behavioral change um, in how we consume information. It's, it's affecting how we expect to acquire knowledge. It's really moving us beyond the, probably beyond the point of where we will have to retain a lot of information because we're going to have it available to us in our devices with, with ourselves always being connected. So then eventually we may not need to necessarily be storing a lot of information in our brains. We'll, we'll have it available to us to look up 
on our devices. Um, and I would argue that even if you think your workers aren't mobile, so it's really defining mobile, right? If you think, well, most of my folks sit around in an office and they're not on the go running around, so they're not mobile. I don't have to think about it. I would argue that you're probably wrong because all workers in some sense are mobile. This constant connectivity is really what's driving that. And just because a worker is tied maybe to one place for a set amount of time, I'm sitting at a desk right now, for example, but it doesn't mean I'm not using a mobile device. Literally, I have a laptop computer in front of me during my workday at my desk, but I also have my mobile device next to me. And I will traverse between those two devices while I sit at my desk. Mm -hmm. And most mobile activity happens when you're not really, quote, mobile, meaning walking around and moving around, right? So I think you have to fundamentally... Um, you know, rethink what, quote, being mobile really is, especially for, for workers. Um, and, and one of the things that I've advocated is this idea of design thinking. It's really getting a, a more empathetic understanding of workers themselves and how they traverse devices during their workday and, and really figuring out whether you provide, you know, you, the company, provide the device or you allow workers to use your, their personal device or whatever your policy is, understanding how behavior has changed is key um, and understanding why and how people access their device and what for is key. Because I can guarantee you that if uh, that your workers are using their mobile devices to gather or gain information about how to do their jobs, they're doing it. They may be using Google to find something out um, or other search search options or whatever, other apps. They're, they're doing that. And so to remain relevant and to remain uh, a factor, a meaningful factor in their ability to perform their job, you really have to start thinking about how you should, if, if possible, how you should be offering learning solutions that are optimized for those devices. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point that uh, mobile, uh, especially the devices, we they, that you don't have to be on the go to be making use of them. In fact, probably many people aren't. And I'm the same way as you. You said you have your your laptop there and your your smartphone there as well beside you during the day. I'm the same way, and I I bet that we are not the outliers of a of, no, of we're not. And re- research shows that most mobile usage occurs in one location. Mm. Well, so if we switch uh, gears a little bit and look at one of the other factors, for you, workplace automation um, includes things like artificial intelligence. Um, and so I would love to hear your thoughts on, on what the implications are for AI in a learning business and, and what applications for AI you see in terms of, of learning and how learning is delivered and consumed. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's the hype factor, right? So there some of these te- these technologies there there is a lot of discussion about uh how it's going to affect what we do, things like that. There there is a hype factor and I think it's it's important for us in learning, but it's important in general for us to understand. And that's one reason I wrote the book, but for us to understand the practical application of some of these technologies. And if we put our, if we work on our learning strategies, most of us in in the corporate world, but I would argue this is probably in almost any context, we can't, we have to think two to three years ahead in some of our strategic choices because of just the time it takes to adopt new technologies and, and, uh, and get them into the field and where our workers have to do their work and things like that. So we have to sort, we have to get a good understanding of what, what meaning these technologies really have for today and for tomorrow. You hear a lot of stuff about autonomous vehicles here at Delta. We're working on autonomy around our airplanes, right? And how we can automate a lot of those processes and things like that. But we're, we're, we're thinking about the application of this technology and how it would work. And I think that's important to do, but I think also we need to get a sensible look at and and make sure we keep a pragmatic view of, of how these things affect uh, our workers. And historically, learning is kind of on the, you know, we're a lot of times we're not necessarily ahead of the curve on this stuff. It's like if it starts happening, like I said earlier, if it starts disrupting our business, then a lot of times we, we are that reactive view and we, 
we have to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we leverage and apply this? Now, when it comes to AI, artificial intelligence, we, we could really leverage, we in learning could really start leveraging the uh, core components of that type of technology uh, even now to, to help with a lot of how we do what we do. Um, but in the short term, I view artificial intelligence really as coming along in the business perspective to help workers alleviate and, and to help the workplace alleviate itself of those rote, more administrative tasks. You know, and for an exam, as, as one example of that, I went out into when I was at Home Depot, uh, I went out into the supply chain and I was observing some of our workers in the supply in one of the fulfillment warehouses, they were fulfilling orders. And so you can go online and you can order fasteners and, you know, door handles and doorknobs and things like that online. And so I was watching a worker walk up and down one of the huge aisles in one of these massive uh, distribution centers. And she was picking fasteners from the shelf to fulfill these orders one at a time. Right. And, Instantly, I thought, you know, why don't we have robots just moving up and down the aisle, filling these orders, right? That, that's probably something that a human should not be focused on doing. And then when you take Amazon's supply chain uh, as an example, they've moved from, gosh, less than, I think, less than a few thousand robots in their supply chain four years ago to over 45,000 robots in their supply chain now. And so that's displaced kind of that, that task of that rote kind of task of finding these things and fulfilling these orders that humans in the past would have done. So I think those will be alleviated. Those tasks will go away. And artificial intelligence will be leveraged, obviously, to help make decisions on the, the kinds of tasks that humans used to do artificial intelligence will be leveraged to come in and displace those rote administrative tasks. But as machine learning becomes even more advanced, we're probably going to be faced with much more critical thinking and decision-making being able to occur automatically as well, right? And so I think we're in the early stages. The, the research I've seen and how I've investigated it shows that, okay, we're a long way away from a machine being able to do serious critical thinking like like we do right so there's no you know we don't have to be too worried right now but there will be um the relief that automation will bring us in these risky dangerous rote automated tasks that's going to really be great when machines are closer to the danger closer to the risk take away our uh you know our focus on on those really boring tasks and, and things like that. And it will reduce error. And, you know, whenever you get several humans in a room, you're going to have error of a certain type. So, so that's, that's what we understand now. The, the key thing I think really is how are humans and automation and artificial intelligence going to work together to bring about the, you know, advances that the business is going to expect us to do. Right. And so I think that's where we in learning have to start thinking about how we train workers to interact more with technology. Uh, we know robots and humans are going to be working a lot together. In the Amazon supply chain, there are robots that are actually training humans on how to do tasks and vice versa. So I think we have some, you know, I'll use the term change management, but we definitely have some, uh, some change that's going to be very, you know, accelerated and very disruptive to how we work that we're going to have to focus on. Also, though, when you look inside of an, a training organization, you know, some of the things that automation can do and artificial intelligence can do will really help us in what we do. I've been looking at some companies that offer uh, algorithms to help uh, discover content that's across the enterprise. You know, a lot of a lot of enterprises create a lot of content mm. that's out there, and you know, we're we in learning a lot of times are creating more and more content that's redundant. There's algorithms out there that can help scan the enterprise content and bring things together based on criteria parameters that can be used in learning solutions and really help drive that faster 
right? And, and help you discover content that's already there so you can stop creating so much content. Um, and there's, so there's, you know, the curation, you think of learning bots to curate content for specific subject matters. Um, think of AI to be used to ensure that materials are up to date, links are active, searches are appropriately filtered. Um, and, and even from an activity design perspective, think of bots that can help provide activities uh, that are uh, based on learner input, for example. So you complete three learning activities, a learning bot maybe creates a new activity based on responses to those previous activities. So it really fundamentally shifts kind of how learning thinks about instructional design in a lot of, in a lot of aspects. Uh, if, if you go a little further and think about assessments and how evaluation of assessments or evaluation of learning that's uh, occurred can happen, uh, there may be, uh, you know, a more adaptive approach that algorithms can bring forward as well. So it's, it's, I think you're right. I think your question is great because I think AI is going to have uh, a big impact on not only what our learners can do from the adaptive standpoint, if they get content that's really relevant and meaningful to them and where they are at on their trajectory or their learning journey, but it can also help uh, change fundamentally how we in the learning business do what we do. Mm. That's really interesting and that the idea of the the AI being a, a driver of personalization, of really making sure people get the right and appropriate content. I, I know that under your workplace automation umbrella, that that's where you also have virtual reality and augmented reality. So sort of similar question to the one I asked about AI, but you know, what implications do you see for VR and AR in a learning business and, and what applications do you see for those? Mm-hmm. I think they're both going through the right curve, right? So I think they're both uh, uh, technologies that that have uh, a really large potential, like I just said, around AI to significantly impact uh, learner experiences and experiential learning, but also how we in the learning business do what we do. We focused quite a bit here and also in our previous job at Home Depot on VR in a couple of areas, really, it was, uh, and actually one third area we were getting into at Home Depot, which was quite interesting. But the first two areas we focused on leveraging VR was in safety and compliance, uh, because it, uh, and then the other area was in uh, a utilization of processes. And so VR is really good in a scalable model, because for example, one of the uh, use cases we had at Home Depot was to use VR to uh, help train folks on safety procedures in distribution centers and in the supply chain. And it was really great because you could set up a simulation of, you know, when folks are needing to use a forklift or when they're needing to stack uh, products and stuff on shelves, and you can simulate what happens when failure occurs or you don't do the right processes and you can hurt yourself or hurt others. So it's really good application in those, in those respects, because you can simulate pretty experientially what would happen and, uh, situation in without having to, to simulate that in the real world. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a, the, the inhibitor, the barrier was, you know, at Home Depot, we had 2000 stores. We had, you know, 18 large distribution centers. We had, uh, uh, and so, and so we had these scaled situations all across the U.S. It's still not; uh, it's still a little cost prohibitive to scale VR across the 18 distribution centers, for example, and have the setups inside there that that you need. So we ran some pilots of that. We see the ability for that to really transform performance and to reduce error and and, and damage and injury of employees and all of that. But quite candidly, we the, the that what I talked about uh, earlier about that that co- you know the cost of what it takes to uh, scale that out versus the cost it takes just to do some training in the actual environment still a little prohibitive with VR on that. But it's amazing how you're seeing just month over month progress in this technology, which is you know, bringing down the cost. And so I think right now a learning business that works at a large scale is, is really going to be focusing on that cost factor 
I think the, the use case proving that uh, it, it's really effective to design solutions for that delivery me- method, it, it's a no-brainer. You know, it's just when the cost becomes prohibitive for the enterprise to roll it out at scale. The, the one thing I would say with VR is every learning business that's operating at a scale and really needing to have some kind of experiential learning should really be figuring out how to become more adept at designing this now because the cost is is getting lower and lower so quickly. It's, ama- it, it's amazing. One of the third areas, so one of the second areas we used VR at was uh, an optimization of processes. So, for example, loading pallets to load onto trucks for delivery. We had a Tetris-like activity with, you know, a timer on it, a leaderboard, that kind of thing, some game mechanics in it that would, that was really trying to train folks on how to optimally load a pallet so that you can optimally load the truck with the most products that the truck can fit, right? So that stuff is really great because it is a little tactile. You don't get the weight factor, but at least you get the brain working on how to best optimize a a pallet in the quickest amount of time because speed, of course, is is one of the drivers of that. So that that was a great use case for it as well. A third use case, which was quite interesting, is we started using VR in interviewing to try to remove as much bias mm. from interviewing as as we could when we're trying to acquire talent at the company, right? So part of that training was really built around. Uh, you practicing interview styles, right, and getting feedback on the fly about how your body language and how your perception of others really leads to a biased interpretation or biased uh, feedback, right? So it's a really interesting kind of way to think about uh, using VR and not just a safety or compliance uh, perspective. Now, for AR, though, AR we see, especially here at Delta, we see a lot of application for AR in the short term because it's it's uh, moving with business and business is looking at wearables as a key factor in helping folks be able to do their job and having an overlay of some sort on on the physical workplace just makes sense when you think about it. So we're really putting a lot of our focus on applications around augmented reality because it especially in repair like tool repair. Tech, you know, the, the folks, that the mechanics and stuff that can quickly get an overlay of information on tools they're repairing. Um, but we're also looking at it to uh, kind of increase performance on folks who are loading loading bags onto airplanes and, you know, stuff like that. So it, it, it's a little bit more practical in the short term uh, that we think there's a decent delivery method for that first before VR. Gotcha. Well, and I think that's um, especially interesting, this this idea that even though costs may be prohibitive at this point, that's going to change very quickly. And so uh, organizations need to be thinking about it, even if they're not necessarily uh, diving headfirst into VR right now or AR, but really sort of continuing to build their internal knowledge of those technologies. So as the price points come down, then they're ready to to take advantage when that happens. So, exactly. And so, uh, you know, one of the other things, I know that you use the term and, and the concept of uh, R-O-L-E, or return on learning effectiveness, and you uh, oppose that to ROI or return on investment. Um, what are your thoughts on how we can best get at learning effectiveness, how we can best understand the effectiveness of the learning that we're offering? Yeah, I think, so Good, it's a great question. I, I quite frankly, have been challenged in... Uh, I've been uh, working with the idea of ROI from a learning standpoint for 25 years. Like how do we, ever since I've been in this business, like how do we really know what we do is really doing something positive to the, you know, to the business. And I remember several years ago, a uh, C level executive, one of the top executives in a company I was working with, asked that question. She's like, you, you've got quite a large learning team there. How do you know what you do is working? <laughs> and, and when you get that level of executive asking you that type of question, you really need to have data to to prove the point and or to at least justify what you're doing. And we didn't really have any data that that could tell a story 
that yes, what we're doing is is really working. And so I've been struggling with that as a, as have most of us, I think, in the learning business uh, of how do we really know? You know, in some some operations, it may be a little bit easier to get information back. A lot of the tech companies I worked in is a little bit easier because you could you could get to the level of the worker, you could spend time with the worker and the managers and leaders, and you could do the Kirkpatrick leveling of finding out, you know, really the effectiveness of what you've done on the workforce. But there are a lot of industries and a lot of workers you can't necessarily get to, or there are lots of variables and variances involved in performance in general. And it's hard to determine where you have that impact. And so I got to thinking more over time about it's less really about the traditional idea of ROI, like you're, you know, if you're a cost center learning business and the business is putting several million into your organization and they're expecting some kind of return, how do you come and say, well, you're spending $1,300 a year on a learner and this is what you're getting for it. That is really hard to quantify in a lot of respects to performance. And, and some folks can do that easier with the type of workforce they have. The type of workforce we have here at Delta, it's a little more difficult uh, to do it because there are so many, like I said earlier, variances involved in what makes up good performance and its impact on the business. So impact is the word I've been thinking about. So how do we have the most impact on performance, which leads to some kind of measure that the business can look at and say, this is what we're looking for or not. I don't know if it's revenue gain, if it's customer service, customer experience, and NPS score. What is that, right? And how does learning and what we do uh, affect that? And so I think there's two parts of that. So it's one of the first things I wanted to do when I came here was look at what data do we have that can inform us in the business on our impact. And uh, we don't have a lot of that. So we're not gathering a lot of data. So I don't want to be data driven necessarily. I want to be data informed. So we're starting that kind of foundational approach of aligning the KSAs, the knowledge, skills, and abilities that each role needs to know to do their job. This is traditional job task analysis that everyone on this podcast probably knows about. We don't have a lot of that. And we definitely don't have a lot of that aligned to what we're creating. So right now we're in that kind of order taking mode where the business is doing a software update or they've got a new process or they've got a new product that they're bringing to market to, to, you know, do something. And and they're just thinking, okay, we need training on it because we have a new thing. And one of the things that is easy for us to know when we know how our business operates is something John Hagel talks about. And he brings this up in the book because I interviewed him in the book about it. And his point is that training for too long, training businesses have been really focused on uh, the standard operating procedures or the things like those cases, the things you need to be doing or the things you need to know to do your job effectively, right? And so that's what we normally train on. We get these SOPs, whatever they may be, or how a system works or what the process should be, and we train that. And the reality is when we go out into the field or into the workplace the, where the performance is occurring, 80%, you know, up to 80% of actually what the worker's faced with and what they're doing is everything but those SOPs. Mm. And so for us to really, you know, if you go out into especially a complex situation, a retail situation, or what we have here in the airline industry, or, a, you know, maybe even a supply chain to some extent, you'll find that yes, there are those SOPs, but that's really not what they're faced with most of the time. And so how do you really get to helping performance be, uh, you know, have impact on the business? And you have to think, that's why ROI, I just want to get rid of that ROI term and really start thinking about, I'm a learning business. How can I really drive effectiveness from a learning standpoint? How can I demonstrate that there is truly impact to the business by having this organization around. And I think that's where we have to fundamentally change the model of what, of what we think about when we build our solutions, you know, and I think that's where we have to leverage real time data, uh, historical data, 
like those KSAs and certifications and what's expected of job roles and curriculum completions and promotions and all these other variances that are involved in someone actually showing up and doing their their job and then leverage that with real-time data of what's going on in the workplace moment by moment and bring these together and gain insight from that and then ask yourself the question, are those connected to the right solutions you're creating? And I would argue that it's probably going to cause a difficult conversation with yourself and your learning team in that a lot of what you're doing is having little to no impact on the business. So I think it's focusing on that word impact rather than just performance. Mm. That's great stuff. Uh, yeah, I think that idea of um, making sure you're really focused on the most important things, that and that can be a difficult conversation because, as you said, there can often be resources and uh, and time and money and people devoted to things that aren't perhaps the most important. So uh, we're going to start wrapping up here, and I want to ask you uh, a question. It's the next to last question. It's one that we ask of everyone who comes on the Leading Learning Podcast, and that's just to think about your own personal learning. And when you look back at what you've done since you've finished your formal education, what's been one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in? That's a good question. Um, especially over 25 years, right? Or yeah. even before that, right? <laughs> um, I'll be honest with you. There's probably the most impactful thing that's occurred to me happened in 20. 20- 2013, when my uh, father was in his late 60s, he, uh, he had a stroke. And it just, you know, just one of these moments that happens when literally a part of his brain melted and he went to the ground and survived his stroke, uh, but was inalterably changed because of that. So it's like one day you had this person and the next day you have another person. Right. And what we did being a learning person, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was dig into and deep, deep dive into strokes and the effects of strokes in the brain and what it, how it impacts the brain and what is, you know, instantly your thought is how do we help him get back to where he was? Mm. Right. And cause that's what we were used to. And that's been about five years ago. It has been a little over five years ago, actually. And so for me, the the biggest learning experience I've ever had in my life was trying to figure out that first thought I had was I, I need to help him get back to where he was. And then I had that realization at some point that he wasn't really ever going to get back to where he was. He's a new, he's a changed person now. And how his brain operates is, is different now. And interestingly, all these years after that, there's parts of him that were never there before that are here now. And so I had that realization at some point of like, I need to stop trying to get him back to where he was and try to understand more deeply where he is now, what's changed and accept and embrace the good about where he is now. He's much more, it's funny how the brain does its, uh, accommodations for what's changed. He, he has difficulty with speech and with talking and with understanding, but he's so much more, uh, emotional and compassionate and caring and patient now, right. Than he was before. So it was, it's been five years of really digging into kind of how the brain is affected by these types of things and how our own expectations of who we are and what our personalities are and, and what we want out of ourselves and each other really can change pretty quickly. And that can be good and bad. Um, and so that's probably been the biggest thing for me of really understanding that what we have is precious and short and guess what? At any moment it could be unalterably changed. And a lot of this journey we're on is just having acceptance to that. And it's really helped me formulate a much more, I don't know, patient maybe perspective on even what we do and helping folks perform better or learn more, whatever they need to do their job, you know, or be where they want to be in their profession. But it's really, really taught me to kind of slow down a little and not get so caught up in a lot of the day to day, but that, you know, 
really embrace the journey we're on and it may change momentarily at any, at any point. Right. So that's probably been the biggest experience I've had, uh, in my life definitely from a learning moment and diving into how the brain operates and what happens when quote things go wrong and then making me rethink, well, maybe that's not necessarily something going wrong. Maybe that's just helping him create a new experience for himself for the rest of his life. So. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that example. It's a, like a good <laughs> a good reminder that sometimes the most powerful learning experiences we have are deeply personal um, and, and deeply emotional. Yeah. So final question is if uh, listeners want to know more about you and your work, where should they go? They should go to LinkedIn. So connect with me on LinkedIn because I have fortunately, uh, uh, been doing a lot of social networking on LinkedIn and and we have the folks that I'm connected to, we have great discussions and conversations about learning and uh, our profession and the changes going on in the workplace and stuff like that. So just find me on LinkedIn and connect there. That's the social media place I'm on the most. Um, And uh, I'm, I'm there almost every day. Well, great. Thank you so much, Brandon, for making time for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's great to be here, and I I appreciate your time, too. Thank you. That wraps up our interview with Brandon Carson. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 154. When you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe, as it helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And as always, we'd also be grateful if you would take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes, and that'll put you in the right place. Salise and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, reviews and ratings play an important role in helping the podcast pop up when would-be listeners are searching for content on leading in the business of lifelong learning. So consider leaving a rating and a review for the Leading Learning Podcast as one of your kind acts of the day. And we'd be grateful if you'd take a minute to visit our sponsor for this quarter, ReviewMyLMS.com. Jeff and I put a lot of time and energy into the Leading Learning Podcast, and one of the reasons we're able to do that is because we're able to generate revenue through other sources like ReviewMyLMS. So please check out ReviewMyLMS.com, and if you can, contribute a review to help others find the right platform for their needs. And last, but far from least, please consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, pick the social network or other medium of your preference and spread the good word. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. <laughs>